You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. The need to make people dream is quite possibly more important today than it's been in years. Figures like Amanda Harlick are both rare and necessary creatures in the world of imagination, and it's certainly not surprising that she's been such a vital force for era-defining designers like John Galliano or Karl Lagerfeld. Having worked with Carl for 27 years and consulted on last year's Met Gala celebrating the late legend, she remains an ineffable force in this multiverse we call fashion. We talk about the work she's doing as a mentor for some of Central St. Martin's emerging talent and the aspects of the fashion industry that can be governed by fear. Are you in or are you out? This is Amanda Harlick and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Amanda Harlick, thank you so much for joining us today. I have been a fan for a very long time and I'm incredibly excited about having this conversation. But as always, we like to start at the beginning, given that not everybody knows the sort of early years that were formative in your life, and it would be wonderful to hear straight from yourself. Well, if I rewind back to my childhood in Camden Town, NW1, Amanda Grebe, I was really lucky because I grew up Regent's Park Terrace, Gloucester Crescent, Inverness Street, Delancey Street, with a bunch of friends whose parents were all creatives in some sense, either musicians or writers, a poet, actors, journalists. And it was an extraordinary time because making things and making things out of nothing was absolutely what you did. It was the normal. And we would do plays. The woman at the end of the terrace used to be an actress. And I think she'd set up like a theatrical costume hire company. And so there were lots of extraordinary costumes to do. And so it would be ancient medieval plays, really, that we would perform seasonally at equinoxes. And of course, coming up to Halloween, that was a highlight on the calendar. And we would really dress up. I remember cutting my mother's black Dior dress into what I felt was an extraordinary witch's outfit because it had millions and millions of little tatters done with nail scissors. I don't think that's what she thought her dress that had gone into the dressing up box was going to be. But you know, you would plait your hair and plait in a sort of a mouse at the end of it, a toy mouse. And we would go around in groups and trick or treat. And the high point of my childhood was dressing up. So storytelling and fashion were very early components in your life, just in terms of discovery and the things that you were exposed to. At what point did you know that those were things you loved? I think as a child, you can understand what you love, but then just your whole being is about, mine was definitely about make-believe. I was often by myself. My parents worked, so I would come back from school and let myself into the empty house. So there was the piano and there was my desk and there was my drawing and I would create whole magazines. So I would draw everything from the cover to the advertisements and write the articles. There was a magazine at the time called Honey. And I called my magazine brown sugar. Obviously, I'd heard the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it was a very important part of my childhood. Even later on, as a 13, 14-year-old, going to Bieber and wandering around and looking at things which were completely inaccessible financially for us. But it was a place where you could be somebody different. And that was an interesting dynamic because I think children always want to be 
somebody else. You want to be either the princess or the devil. But yeah, I think I was a child who wove stories in her head the whole time about everything. And I still do, actually. I was going to say it's very much a part of your offering and the nature of the work you do. I think of creativity as a very generative force when it comes to the context of storytelling. And even the way you speak, there's this very tangible quality to the way you share the ideas that you see and experience in your mind. And I'm guessing that's been a huge part of the work that you've done with so many different designers and creative partners over the years. Thank you. I always think everybody thinks like that. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I can tell the story of the woman I'm sitting opposite to on the train. And I'm always amazed when I'll make up a story, obviously. And friends will just say, how does your brain work? Why do you think like that? But for me, it's a way of navigating life. I'm no good with random disconnected sounds. I need to make music out of the related pitch of the notes and the resonance between. I need to compose bits of broken china so that they make a pattern that is pleasing, that sings its song. I used to collect literally silver foil and stuff like that just to make collages and pictures. So I'm always trying to connect things from the disarray and randomness of life, which otherwise you want to scream because it's so terrifying. By the time I got to Oxford, I discovered charity shops. So then I could do full looks and one day I could be a a Chinese princess in a embroidered dressing gown (laughs) that I'd got. But I also understood the power of clothes. Mid-Oxford, I chopped off all my hair and got into the shop boy and bought bonded trousers and made it to world's end and... Yes, that was a whole other thing. I remember my father then absolutely excommunicated me and wouldn't even sit in the same carriage on the train. But so I was going to ask how it was received. Yeah, I would yeah, imagine you that was just realize this whole thing about your surfaces, even though we are all of us skin, ligament, bone, and that curious flame that is spirit. But what we choose to cover ourselves with albeit to protect or to camouflage or to express something is so powerful. And our need to belong to a tribe and to belong to a tribe by going in an opposite direction even is fascinating. Of course. And everything you're describing to me tells a story of a much more sort of innate or inherent quality that wasn't anything you necessarily learned during official studies. Going ahead a few years post your education and such and having been working at Harper's Bazaar at the time, I believe, and already working with publications like The Face and ID, you met John Galliano and the pair of you had decided to start working together. What was the beginning of that like and how did it change things for you? I'll never forget that. I mean, falling in love is something, it's so powerful. And, you know, there's so much luck and timing that's connected to which doors we walked through. And I was very lucky that Sophie Hicks, who was a friend of mine, because she was going out with Nick Coleridge at Oxford, had invited me. I remember her saying, if you're that interested in fashion, why don't you come on a shoot? She had a junior fashion editor role at Harper's and Queen, as it was called then, mm-hmm. which was four pages of young fashion or shopping bazaar, I think it was called. 
And so I went on the shoot and it was very clear at that moment that it's a lot faster creating a story with an image, with a photographer, with hair, makeup, with your model as your actor and your light is also, you know, your dress. Sophie then said, look, I'm going to Vogue. So there'll be a job coming up at Harper's. I applied for the job and got the job. Fast forward through three years and I met John after his degree show and I've been looking for very specific things. I'm always quite specific about actually what the story is going to look like. So that's just me. I, I think I drive my assistant mad because it's like, don't explain it. I need to see it. And I needed this kind of 18th century Beau Brummel kind of boy-girl creature. And Mario was doing the pictures and Susie Bick was the beautiful model. And I couldn't find the clothes. And a friend said, why don't you go and see John? He's just done the most extraordinary degree show at St. Martin's, Les Incroyables. So I invited him to tea and he brought his wonderful book. I think I described it like Prospero's book with his exquisite, fragile, emotional drawings with his swatches of fabric. And suddenly I knew that there was nobody else that I wanted to be with or work with except for John because... There was just this understanding, like finishing each other's sentences. So when Malcolm McLaren asked me to style the album cover for Madame Butterfly, I knew I couldn't do it without John. And then that became just a way of being. Yeah, we made the fan. We got a huge fan. And then we got newspapers from Gerard Street and dribbled kind of blood red ink over it. I love the process of making. And then... I'd left Harper's because I was going to have a baby and John did his first collection. His unshown show was at a stand at Olympia called Afghanistan Repudiates Western Ideals. And he asked me to help with it. And then it seemed impossible not to work together. So that's what I did. I mean, it was an incredible journey and it certainly wasn't the only one in terms of long-term collaborations and incredible design relationships, which you later on had with Carl Lagerfeld, who you met through the late Andre Leon Talley. How would you describe those early days with Carl Lagerfeld? I think all of that was, I think, quite traumatic, actually. Uh -huh. I mean, John, I understood there was a sort of shared faith. Carl, he was very difficult to get to know. Initially... I had no idea what my role was meant to be. I walked into all sorts of closed doors, probably put my foot in it a thousand times. Over the years, I began to realize that Carl required a brilliant and engaged team. I could really help as a sounding board, but the ideas came from him. Whereas John was much more, I was call it democratic, but it was like a shared experience and mm -hmm. that he would springboard off ideas that the team brought to the table. My role with Carl, I can analyze it now, was a much more passive one. He would say to me, it's very clear, I'm not a woman. I don't know what it's like to wear the clothes. And that's very astute. That I mean, the strength of Gabrielle Chanel was that she was designing for herself. 
initially, because dressing was something that fascinated me, I would get together outfits that probably involved a lot of vintage and was not what Carl was doing at Chanel at the time. But it was provocative in a good way because it was playing with proportions differently. And he never copied what I wore, but it would shift something. You guys worked straight through to when he had passed away. and 27 years. Which is just unfathomable, I think, in terms of a lot of examples of longevity in the industry and the unique ability to very much stay at the forefront of things and ever connected and age while somehow never losing an ounce of curiosity. So what types of benchmarks would you pick from that 27-year journey together that really stand out to you today? Obviously, there's the whole series of great shows and just really... For me, it was seeing the brilliance of his mind and an extraordinary, extraordinary gift of absorbing information, um, particularly visual information. He could reference exactly the form of any piece of clothing over hundreds of years. I always wish he'd done the book where he was going to show how women's body shape and boys, for that matter, and how they moved over the decade, not just the outline, you would understand exactly the techniques and the workmanships from each decade over the centuries. And that that's what would then weave its way into his collections, which would usually be completely unobserved or not understood by either the people wearing them or people watching the show or shooting it. Another thing that you've spoken about over the years that I think is a tremendously beautiful trait, and I would love to hear where you found that it first started in your life is the importance of things like collaboration. Because as you've pointed out in fashion historically, a lot of people have been kept apart by this sense of competition. And it's really in the magic of coming together that the most incredible things have been made. So when did you first discover that openness or preference for collaboration over competition? I'm a team player. And I guess now I'm finding it it's interesting doing my own work, writing a book, or getting on with a painting is hard because I'm not doing it with other people. There's a sort of shared energy which actually you get to a place you could never get to sometimes by yourself. Collaboration to me is, I think, vital in everything. I mean, in the fashion industry, it's just everybody sees things a different way. It could be the color red or it could be what it's associated with. And to be able to bring all the creatives, because a design team now is not so much one designer. Carl was different in that it was his vision and his idea and his teams followed exactly his very clear prescriptive sketches. Now I feel it's much more a community where mm-hmm. each of the designers bring their tailoring references, their flu references, their embroidery, their textile innovations. And that's very exciting. You actually collaborated on this year's Met that was celebrating, Carl. What was that collaboration like? Well, Andrew Bolton is just the most brilliant man. And to stand in the light of his sun or moonlight was really illuminating the way he could connect things together and how he curated the whole exhibition with such kind of perceptive intelligence. I was just, I just enjoyed every step of the way. I loved 
There's got to be a different name for it, but brainstorming, because you're not actually storming each other's brains. You're actually connecting. You're actually creating something beautiful or rare or strange together. And from the sort of very beginning all the way through to visits to New York where I would draw the ideas of how we might show the exhibition and that would then develop into another idea and then Angie would bring in another idea. Or creating the echo chamber in Ando's extraordinary moving set where we had all the iPhones and I got Bailey Walsh to come in and create this iPhone kind of extraordinary installation of hundreds of iPhones, which played this clip of Carl laughing at himself, but also syncopated with all his extraordinary aphorisms. I mean, it certainly came out incredible. Another thing that I actually remember, I don't know which interview it was from, but there was something you had mentioned about Isabella Blow that really stood out and is something that's come up in past episodes as well, which is this idea that powerful people are vulnerable or Isabella Blow felt so much and so passionately. We've definitely discussed the notion that creatives tend to be even more sensitive than other people in a lot of ways. And I wanted to find out from you why you think that is and if you think of yourself as someone that's sensitive. I definitely feel that the fashion world, which is often called superficial, glossy, not necessarily emotional, but highly visual, sensitive people can really feel judgment from across a room. And it's a tough business like that because I think the fashion industry is also governed by fear are you in or are you out? Like the Empress New Clothes can be a scary world to negotiate. And I think Izzy never understood how incredible she was. She always felt she had to disguise herself, that she was in some sense ugly. And she had a bit like an actor, really no idea if she's going to get another gig. Is it something that you perhaps in your own way relate to in terms of the idea of being sensitive as a creative? Or do you yes. feel like you have a different relationship to yeah, that? Yeah, I feel sometimes perforated because the number of people you see backstage at a show, it's like hundreds or maybe a hundred. But I think this is also why I've managed to work so long for Carl and with John is because I think I may be good at anticipating or understanding what somebody was thinking. That's not to say that I'm a mind reader or anything like that, but I remember the worst thing that Carl, I used to imagine, would ever say to me was if he turned around and said, that's not what I meant at all. We'd be doing a dossier de press shoot. That's the photo shoot like a week before the show where the lead looks would be photographed and they'd be on the seats for people when they came to the show. And after that shoot, Carl would expect me to explain in words what the intention of his collection was and how the rhythm worked and what it was about. You've been given such titles as creative consultant and muse and icon and a number of other things, but people have also said that you're this undefinable thing not to be put in any one box. And I'm sure it's a reductive question, but I would love to hear your point of view on the way you see your role in this crazy industry. I am this undefinable thing, <laughs> um, this creature that loves just being in the wilds of Shropshire and North Wales and 
I'm not really a fashion person, although I love the whole creative process that goes into making a collection. I often think, what would I feel if I wasn't working on a collection? I don't know. It's something that I've done ever since I was five is to put two things together and then you make a different shape. And that's fascinating. I think, I hope, I suppose it all connects up is I'm a connective. I'm a conductor in stitching between one person and another to try and make a cohesive musical whole. I think that on a shoot, for example, I don't believe that it has to be, it's not my idea. I think I'm good at engaging everybody else. You have a hairstylist like Eugene Solomon or Guido or Sam Knight, they're brilliant. You need to have them involved as deeply as you are as a stylist. And of course, the photographer has to be majorly involved. So I'm a connector. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. One thing that really I'm now obsessing about is this idea that you don't think of yourself as a fashion person. So in that particular context, what to you is a fashion person? Because to me, you epitomize it. You're just a very inspiring, unique, and somewhat eccentric person. And I remember even watching that show studio <laughs> interview of you in black and white on this sofa and this incredible outfit and just the way you were speaking to things. I feel like you're a bit of a weaver and yeah. you love clothing and you wear it well. And clearly your work is an expression of that passion. So if you're not a fashion person, then what is a fashion person? I think a fashion person now is somebody like the influencers and bloggers, the front row. Mm. And I'm that, not that person. Mm-hmm. I admire their energy, but then I also feel it so here and then gone, mm-hmm. which I find bad. I think I love things to endure, which by the nature of fashion, it endlessly cancels itself out with the next. Speaking of enduring things, you've been incredibly generous with your experience and understanding of creativity process and fashion as a whole with the work you're doing with the students at Central St. Martin's. So I wanted to know how important it was to you to share that world with the next generation. That is actually something that completely switches the light on in my head. Mm-hmm. I have been so lucky to mentor Brandon Choi, who was the first Chanel bursary scholar, and I'm now mentoring the lovely Joshua Uruzi. And I find all the students, any students who've asked me for advice or to read their dissertation, or there is just that enthusiasm and that energy and that willingness to try. I find it's, you know, It's literally like a vitamin B6 shot or whatever it is. It's interesting as well to juxtapose the emerging talent of today with the historical talent of the industry. And I think it's always easy to have hindsight be 2020 and understand what was uniquely special about past times. And perhaps sometimes we are guilty of revisionist history. But what do you find the most exciting about this particular moment in terms of the people, places and things and talent that you're encountering today? I think what intrigues me and strengthens me is that there is still a real curiosity and desire for craft and skill, the skill of hands that make and weave things out of nothing. I know that there'll be AI collections and there'll be AI shoots and everything will be done that way, but there's also a counter movement 
Mm-hmm. Of, so if you look what Jonathan's doing at Loewe, for example, and I know this is happening at Fendi too and other houses, is this complete, well, Chanel with the embroidery initiative at the Prince's Trust, is this real support but also a kind of dialogue with the basket weavers, with the ceramicists, with the embroiderers. It's just that is, to me, very different from 30 years ago. Of course. Progress isn't always a deviation from quality crafters. Sometimes there are additional tools that one can add to their arsenal. And it's interesting to see the way the things you've just described are evolving alongside the way those things that are more technologically based are also evolving. Because we seem to encounter that kind of fear-mongering component of what that progress can represent for the way we've done things to date and the roles people play from generating set builds via AI or even glam or the models themselves and like you said collections but then on the flip side you also have other people who view this as an opportunity to employ those things in their favor and only kind of expand upon their creativity so I like to sit more on the optimistic side of the latter personally. Me too the one thing I would just say is that when I've seen AI fashion shoots for example they seem almost airbrushed (laughs) and I really love the mark, the floor, the scratch, the loose thread. It's the dissonance of humanity that actually gives you the beauty, I think. And it's funny to think that's a notion that's probably now considered romantic. Oh. <laughs> Something else I wanted to ask oh, you that's only... funny. Be- romantic, that's a, such an old-fashioned thing, isn't it? It really is, right? Well, at the end of the day, I think that's another reason why there's so many conversations around things like neuroscience, because... In a very real way, humans are simply wired differently than they were even a generation or two ago. And there are those disparities between the way some people experience life and others who have formed those neural connections in a different environment and during a different time. I mean, think about the effect of children and putting a phone or an iPad in front of them at a dinner and the way they just immediately zone out the entirety of their surrounding. It's alarming to anticipate what that looks like in the future. Yeah, it's really scary watching a child, a little child in a pushchair, not being able to see what its parent was pointing to. So it made the gesture of expanding the vision a bit Uh like, you know, to cancel you swipe. (laughs) I know. I, I, I guess at this point we have to just sort of be ready for the fact that, you know, our children or their children are about to be cyborgs at one point. Isn't there, what is that thing called that I feel like Elon Musk had kind of put out briefly in a beta phase where you have it behind your ear. It's kind of... Um, I just believe that there will be rolling power cuts and people won't be able to charge their phones and iPads anyway. There will be what? Rolling power cuts. Okay. Climate change. Yeah. Yeah. This volatile world, the war zones, there will not be phones. Wow. I think that's the first time I found myself hearing something that I can't imagine. Learn to walk in the dark. What a beautiful notion. I mean, even just the idea of mindfulness, right? Or the ability to be with yourself without any particular distractions at this point is just nearly impossible for a lot of people. Well, you don't have to pick your phone up in the morning for a bit. And it's true, and you shouldn't. But, you know, we can't fight progress. It's just progress at what cost. I mean, the Apple sign has got a bite taken out of it. Literally. After such knowledge, what forgiveness? What was the Andre 3000 quote, I think, was spaceships don't have rearview mirrors. Mm. <laughs> Which I no, they also. Don't. They really don't. Right? It was a good metaphor. 
It's a completely unrelated question, but one that I'm personally attached to making sure we have the chance to ask you before moving on to our last question, which was about something we spoke a lot about on the last season of the show, and that's imposter syndrome and this notion that it's ubiquitous to the human experience. And again, I don't know you well, and I've only met you a few times and obviously watched interviews with you online, but I feel like you're not one to experience things like imposter syndrome, despite the fact that pretty much anyone alive does at some point or another, but you seem very settled in who it is you are and the point of view that you share. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I get very confused by people I meet. I mean, I guess I'm a really slow learner, but they're not who I thought they were. I wrote a story about that. It's just like how over time you understand naturally and it's how we're all haunted by our we're all ghosts we're all haunted by our experiences of the past and that takes time to understand and how does one move beyond the reach of those experiences that kind of can live on in the mind and affect the way you experience things today if they're broken and jagged then you have to learn how to live with them uh -huh. and that's important you can't just magic them away Mm -hmm. But you can heal, but it's also about recognizing them so Absolutely. that you can walk around them or stop what you would normally, your habitually, your reactive way of dealing with that pain. Beautifully said. And we can't let you go without asking you the namesake question of what is contemporary now? <laughs> What's contemporary now? I think ancient myth and ritual the old ways, the skill of making, craft. It's like two stones clapped together on a hillside, echoing forever. Gorgeous. I'm so thankful that we had the chance to do this today, so thank you for taking the time. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes, and for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary, or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com.